You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is your host, Abraham. And this is Shane. And so today, Mr. Shane, we get to talk about something really interesting. I feel like we've been sort of on a a brain-centric kick lately. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like it's been cool to kind of explore that because I feel like, you know, I've attended a couple talks that talk about neurology and stuff like that. And it's always really interesting to kind of understand and kind of learn about that whole field because it's just very unique. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on there and it definitely is its own little world worth of research. And so on that note, have you ever had part of your body amputated? Not that I know of. Okay. I convinced my daughter for a little bit that I had a tail, <laughs> that I was born with a tail. Nice. And I, I don't know that she's ever figured out that I didn't yet. Hmm. All right. Well, does your pretend tail cause you pain? No, not that I know of. All right. Do you know someone who has had anything amputated? Not off the top of my head. I do have a friend whose child was born with a limb difference. Okay. But I don't know anybody that has had something amputated that I can think of. I actually don't think that I have either. So I won't be able to speak necessarily from personal experience here. But what happens to some people if part of their body is amputated or removed in some way, and incidentally, this doesn't count hair, is that those people will often report feeling something, usually pain, in the place where their limb or that body part, whatever it was that was removed, where where that thing used to be. Okay. Now, obviously, there's no body part there to experience pain, but nevertheless, they will report as if there is the sensation of pain that they're feeling. And so there's a term for this that's called phantom limb pain, obviously, for because they're not really there, so phantom. And that's sort of where that comes from. It's a fairly interesting phenomenon. I, you know, when I learned about it originally and kind of, I guess, got some exposure to the actual concept, it really kind of made me, I had so many questions about it. <laughs> it's like, how does this happen? Like, where does this even come from? Yeah. Because it is such a, a an interesting thing that I feel like I, I can't think of any other phenomenon that compares to it, really. Yeah, it is. It does seem unique in a lot of ways. And so if you, listener, has the same questions that Shane, Shane has, and hopefully we'll, we will be able to answer those in this discussion, because we are going to ask, what is phantom limb pain, how it works, and the treatment for it, and also address something that didn't occur to me until I was prepping for this discussion, which is, if you are born with a limb difference, as you had said, if there are people who report experiencing this phantom limb pain in that situation. And I'm going to hold on to that little gem until we get there. All right. That sounds good. All right. So first, let's just give a little description about what this phenomenon is. When we talk about phantom limb pain, it includes, quote, pain, unquote, but only refers to the experience of sensation from a body part that has been removed. So they're talking about having some sensation or some feeling from some part of the body that has actually been removed from the person. And the way that these reports are described, they've sort of been categorized into these clusters that in how people describe them. And the clusters are that the pain is related either to a posture of the limb, like it's being held stiff or it's being held in an uncomfortable position. Uh, People report a sensation of that limb moving, which is really interesting. And then the last one is this just a sensation of pain that can be a lot of different things for certain people in terms of it could it could be described as stabbing burning squeezing as if it's being forced into that uncomfortable position some people have described it as shooting or even a throbbing sensation i could only imagine how how strange that must feel 
I know, right? I was trying to imagine it for myself and it's just such a, that'd be such an alien experience to me. I think when we go over like some of these episodes, I try to always put myself in that position, like try to put myself in those shoes to try to have some understanding of what's going on. Yeah, totally. This is one that I literally cannot put myself in that space to be like, what would that experience be like? Yeah, it's, I don't know. I I, I wish, I, I definitely really want to have a lot of, of sympathy for these people and I, I haven't had that, that exact experience. So, I mean, this sounds sounds really uncomfortable yeah for sure so what's interesting about this is it's likely been around for all of human history as far as we know and it's possible that it occurs in animals too which is a fairly interesting thing isn't that crazy yeah yeah considering like some dogs have their tails amputated and stuff Ooh, good point oh i didn't even think about that you know i have grew up with boxers and they always had the little nubs right so i wonder how that must feel yeah i mean it'd be hard to exactly report on that but and and we'll talk about the reason why it's likely in animals since we can't get their subjective report but it does tell us that if that's the case then this isn't probably a language or human bound phenomenon right so the first record of this was in 1551 by a french physician named ambrose pear and they noted that patients reported pain in an amputated part long after their amputation occurred so they were still reporting these feelings and sensations and pain after the amputation occurred Right. So in 1871, an American neurologist found that, quote, thousands of spirit limbs were haunting as many good soldiers every now and then tormenting them, end quote. And he subsequently coined the term phantom limb. And so that's where that term comes from is that 1871 physician, although it had been known about for quite a bit longer than that. The image that that quote gave me is so ridiculous. Like all I can think of is just thousands of hands. Yeah. Like ghost hands, like hanging out around an army, like just basically what they're saying, like not like they're not that somebody experiencing that. Like all I could think of is like severed limb, like ghost limbs. And that's just a very strange. Wow. I don't know. Image. Interesting. I sort of imagined several soldiers standing around who had like missing limbs, but they're where their limbs should be. There was sort of a ghost image of a limb. Yeah. There was like an entire army of them. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's probably the more normal <laughs> thing <laughs> instead of like happy ghost hands dancing around <laughs> so in a 2018 article it was reported that 60 to 80 percent of amputees experienced phantom limb pain sensations or phantom limb sensations and another had actually reported 85 percent. so there are a lot of people that are reporting this right and this has mostly been experienced for just amputated limbs as you might imagine but this has been reported for other body parts including breasts for people who had mastectomies facial parts and then there were even some reports that i found of people reporting the phantom limb experience for missing teeth which is which is interesting too and then also <laughs> shane is grimacing his face because you just gotta uh, maybe everyone is yeah you're thinking about ah what if if my teeth were gone and i was experiencing this pain where they used to be and ugh. yeah i just teeth things teeth stuff just gets under my skin i think but i have a, a root canal and I'm wondering, like, now I'm just thinking, like, I have, like, a crown in my ma- in my mouth. So I'm, like, wondering what that's, that's a very strange thing. Anyway, I have a prosthetic, essentially. I have a prosthetic tooth. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about phantom limb pain or these sensations, they can be fleeting or they can be continuous. So some people report that it kind of, like, flares up and goes away. And other people report that it stays around for a period of time. Yeah. And so one question I had when I was learning about this initially, sort of back in my early psychology days, was does it feel like the whole thing is in pain? Like just from like, imagine I'm trying to imagine that if I had the bottom part of my arm past the elbow amputated and I was experiencing phantom limb pain, 
is it like my wrist and my hand and my entire forearm and all of that would hurt? Is it like where I would imagine the skin would be would hurt? And so it's different for different people, but generally reports indicate that where people experience pain, it tends to be largely concentrated in the point furthest removed on the amputated part of the body. So in this case, if I'm understanding what they're saying in here correctly from their reporting, it would be, so if I had had my forearm amputated just past the elbow, then I might be experiencing pain largely in like my fingers and sort of my fingertips too, and maybe my whole hand, but definitely at that furthest area is where I would feel the greatest concentration of it, even though they weren't there anymore. Hmm. Cause I would have that same question too. Is like, to what extent does this happen? I feel like for me, and I really have no reason to believe that this is the case, but I keep wondering I feel like I would experience the pain being where my bones used to be. And maybe it's because I've broken the bones in my arms a couple of times. So I I know what it feels like when those are like messed up and mangled, but I just keep imagining. I'm like, I would, I would feel like I had a phantom skeleton pain sort of thing going on. And that's exactly it. It's like, still think those are the questions. It's like, what is this experience like? Cause it just cannot imagine what it must be like. So when people do experience this or it does come up though, some people say they experience it right away. Some people experience it after years that it fades, that it feels controllable or not. There's a lot of different experiences around this particular phenomenon. That was something that surprised me so much is that someone might have a part of their body amputated for some reason and not actually experience any of the symptoms of phantom limb pain for like years after that amputation. And they don't know, like they don't know why it would just sort of flare up after this long period of time and not initially like you might think it would make sense for it to initially hurt and then fade or to just be sort of underlying pain that happened maybe indefinitely but it would be weird for i don't know it seems unexpected to me that it would just sort of come out of nowhere after a long period of time with no symptoms whatsoever but that does happen yeah and i think that brings us to the question of why why does this happen right because if everybody's having a unique experience and everybody is kind of reporting different things, it's probably important to understand why this even occurs. And we found the best answer for why this happens. Are you ready? I am so ready for this. Nobody's sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is my favorite answer for anything in psychology. <laughs> That's such a tease. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I wish that we could give like a really great answer. And I honestly think if we had a really good one, we probably would have given it away, unfortunately. But yeah, the exact mechanism by which we would experience pain is really just not clearly understood. There are several hypotheses we're going to go over, and there are some things that we do know about the experience of pain. But unfortunately, they really just, we don't know why some people experience it and some people don't. We don't know why it fades for some people and for some people it doesn't. We don't know why it comes on for some people immediately and for some it takes a long time. We don't even know what the process is by which they feel the pain to begin with. It's this really interesting thing that they're studying a lot in. And I tried to get as much as I could from the most cutting edge research because there's actually a lot of people studying this. So that's an interesting thing is there is like a group of people that are like, I'm a phantom limb expert. Yes, I think they tend to be neurologists who specialize in amputations and one of their areas of interest inside of this are phantom limb i don't think there's any like phantom limb degree but i think there are people who spend a lot of their career time in this <laughs> what did you what did you get your uh what did you get your degree in ghost hands <laughs> So what's what's interesting about this is that each part of the body is connected to each other part of the brain. So essentially what ends up happening is we've got this large network 
and these bundles of nerves and all the stuff that's connected. I mean, we're talking like on the level of billions of neurons that connect to different spots in the brain. And so essentially what ends up happening is when a limb is severed, the remaining connection of that limb still exists. So it's kind of like if you cut a tree in half, the trunk is still there, right? Like the stump and the trunk are still there. Yeah. Well, I kind of like to think of the development process in utero. And essentially we kind of start out as a brain and our body just sort of sprouts out. Like our brain is like a seed and it sort of sprouts body parts out from there. And so all the connections of those little sprouts from that seed are all still there when the part of the seed is chopped off. So I'm thinking of we're harvesting like tomatoes and <laughs> it's a terrible metaphor for this. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to stop right there. And I mean, but anyway, just thinking about the idea that we have like the seed and these maybe go back to the tree thing and like branching off of it. And so you cut any one of those little branches. Well, all the other connections to all the other branches are still there because they all go back to that little seed, which is the brain that we have. I'm doing a lot of hand gestures that don't make sense on a podcast, but if you can sort of follow my meaning there in terms of how things develop, it kind of does make sense that we would still have all those connections there. Right. And so there's some suggestion that those severed connections, there's a hard time finding words for this in in the literature because there's a lot of metaphors, but the way they describe it is that the connections where those limbs are connected in the brain, they get sort of confused or quote unquote rewired and interpreted therefore as something else. And so for instance, what, happens for some people is they might touch one part of their body but then feel a sensation where the amputated limb was and so okay well we have our arm our arm is connected to all the parts of our body but maybe weirdly it's just more connected to and this, i have no reason to think this but let's just say our stomach so if i touch my stomach all of a sudden i'm feeling like a sensation in my limb and then that would be something that would sort of trigger that experience of pain of like wait a minute, this thing that's supposed to be there isn't there. And so that that might happen if there's this cross-wiring sort of thing. I'm trying to say this better, but essentially it's like the connection sort of doesn't know where to be, if you will, because it's just sort of all tangled up with all those other connections. And so now other things are starting to trigger the experience that the connection used to trigger just sort of by accident. So you might touch part of your body and then feel that sensation. Is that making some sort of sense? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would probably liken it to like faulty wiring in a house. Okay. So like you have your power source and then when the, when the wiring is not set up like it's supposed to be or like that it's like designed to be then the the excess power will go somewhere else right like it'll end up like shorting out some appliances in your kitchen because the wiring is not really like it's not it's not connected in the way that it's designed to be connected so like there's too much of a current or the current's going into the wrong place or something along those lines this sort of reminds me fight club is one of my favorite movies and i've probably seen it 100 or 200 times and there was a line when they're moving into their dilapidated house where they're like, turn on one house or turn on one light and then another one somewhere in the house turns off. Yeah. Stuff like that. And then, yeah, exactly. Like you were saying, that's the thing is like, you know, you have these nerves and these neurons and all these connections that get repurposed and they're just like, I guess this is what I do now. Right. <laughs> it's fair. So what ends up happening and kind of what's been reported and, and what's been found is that phantom limb pain occurs more frequently in patients who have stump pain for longer periods of time. So like maybe somebody's had a, a limb amputated and they have some pain in the stump and the longer that they have pain in the stump, it's more likely that they'll have longer experiences or prolonged experiences with phantom pain. And the phantom pain is likely to subside once the pain in the stump starts to be relieved as well. Yeah. And so, okay. 
I'm going to go super nerdy biology for just a few seconds. Are you ready? I'm so ready for this. Okay, great. So in uh, many of these clusters of neurons, there's something called root ganglion cells. And those root ganglion cells, the researchers have found that those tend to change by becoming either more sensitive or more active to chemical and mechanical changes. And specifically with plasticity in the development of the dorsal horn and other areas of those root ganglion clusters. Okay, so for those people who are into biology, hopefully that that worked for you. And for those people who didn't, I hope that that sort of made some amount of sense. Essentially, let me see if I can say this a little, a little bit differently. There are these bundles of neuron parts that are more sensitive to change when a limb is amputated. Yes. Yes. I think I did it. <laughs> we did it. So listeners, we struggled with figuring out how to make that sentence work. Yeah, we were practicing before we recorded. Because I really wanted it to make sense, and I think I did okay. I think you did it, yes. Bundles of nerves that become more sensitive following the amputation. Yes. Yeah, we did it. Something that happens, too, is that the nerve regrowth, because nerves do regrow, so the nerve regrowth that does occur at the amputation site is called a neuroma. And they contribute to, but they're not the sole cause of phantom limbs. So they do kind of, they are involved in that process, but they're not the reason why phantom limb pain occurs. Yeah, that was one of the early hypotheses was they knew that this this nerve regrowth happened where there was at the stump site or where the amputation site occurred and that those neuromas were there. And so they attributed phantom limb pain 100% to the neuromas. But the more they did research on this, the more they found that just didn't account for everything, especially because for one thing, it wasn't present in all people who had an amputated limb. So that didn't really work anymore because you're going to see nerve regrowth in the part of the body where this occurs. And then there are other reasons as well. But just to, to move past that, there is also this hypothesis that just because there's this connection that exists, but part of that connection is gone, the reaction that our brain sort of has is limb is gone, must be in pain or like not receiving input must be in pain. Like almost like an error code. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's like thing missing should be receiving input thing in pain is sort of the the decision tree process. And that's a, a gross oversimplification metaphor of how that process works but that's sort of the idea there is part of the hypothesis in terms of why we might feel pain might be that we should be experiencing a thing here and we're not therefore if that thing is something we can't sense then something must be happening to it and the thing that's happening to it is not good because otherwise we'd be able to sense it and that kind of leads into this idea that there's a possibility that some situations that the limb would be used or be affected by some sensation would more likely trigger these phantom limb sensations or these phantom limb pains. So for example, if I am supposed to feel a sensation in my hand, like if, if it's some scenario, like, you know, maybe it's cold out or uh, maybe I put a glove on one of my hands and I'm supposed to feel that sensation on the other hand or something along those lines, some sensation that would affect that limb. Maybe I'm going to feel that sensation of the phantom limb in that moment. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There are like all the sort of cues and triggers and conditions under which we would normally be experiencing use of that limb and expect sensation to be there. And then it's just not, then it, it might trigger that experience, the experience of, of pain occurring. And as you mentioned earlier, and I want to reiterate this point, I mean, this has been reported in up to 85% of people who've had an amputated body part. So like that's pretty much everyone that has to deal with this. So and this is fairly universal, almost universal. There is a hypothesis that some have put forward that it's just all in your head. It's just however you choose to think about your amputation is will predict the extent to which you report feeling uncomfortableness and pain around that. 
I don't find that particularly useful. I mean, I think that there is, in the way that we orient to and experience pain, there is certainly something to be said about how we verbalize our experience of it. And I think when we, there is the potential to augment the experience of pain by focusing on it in a particular way or even trying to escape it by just like pretending it's not there or by distracting yourself. Cause there is, there is some literature the, the point of this discussion was not to get into discussion of pain or treatment for pain. There is some literature on people practicing this idea of acceptance with pain and that mitigating their experience of pain. Again, not really for this point, but all that being said is I think it turns the dial up or down on that a little bit, but I don't think it's fair to say that it's all in your mind. Because I think at the end of the day, if you get into any of the research on this or look at any of the reports on this or really just kind of what we know about it, nobody really knows. So it's not fair to say that it's in your head. When there are biological processes, there are neurological processes, we still don't really understand everything that happens with the brain. Like it's one of the most complex organs, if not the most complex organ that we have. We don't really understand it. So it's not really fair to say it's all in our heads because we just simply don't know. And I also think it creates the situation in which one might feel tempted to blame the person who's experiencing phantom pain as well, like, well, just stop thinking about it and then you won't have that problem. I'm like, it's not really that simple. You know, I, like that's, that's kind of true of any uncomfortable situation that maybe you could think about it in a way that it's a little less discomforting, but like when people are in pain, like that's something to be taken seriously. Yeah. I mean, it's like, this is kind of off topic a little bit, but like when you tell somebody with anxiety just to like calm down, like it'll be yeah, fine. St- just don't stop think being about anxious. it. Or like somebody with depression is like, don't just, just go outside. Don't be so sad. It's like, that's not how that works. Just smile and you'll be fine. Just smile. It's like, or that's not how that works. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think ultimately there are several hypotheses. And I mean, one that does resonate fairly well with me is understanding how the fact that going back to that metaphor of sort of the brain is the seed and all the parts of our body sprouting off of that seed when those things are cut and they are not fatal because they certainly can be depending on the nature of it, that the remaining connections are all still there. Like all of that part of the brain and all of those experiences and context that were associated with use of that limb and like our learning history, which are also, again, part of the brain, you think about all that stuff is still there. And so I think that those two things make the most sense to me in terms of the hypotheses that those people have, that those researchers have put forth is that we have the context in which it occurs that we're used to using our, that limb for something. And so when that happens, and you got to think about too, like if it were the case that something were to get shut or fall on or injure the part of your body that has now been amputated and you might have the experience of like anticipating that thing landing on where that body part is and then it doesn't happen because the body part's not there anymore. And it's sort of like all of a sudden, all of the things that we feel and think and experience that we associate with pain in that context are all immediately relevant without the actual stimulation of pain. It does make sense that you would immediately feel pain. And again, all the connections there are, are there in terms of the neurons and all the connections are there in terms of our semantic relation to that context. So I think those things make the most sense to me. Yeah. And I mean, I think too, like, cause it, that goes back to the idea. Like I love those discussions around how we have more than five senses. Right. Yeah. Like that spatial awareness piece. Yeah. And seeing ghosts and seeing ghosts. So we kind of 
alluded to this earlier when we talked about people born with limb differences and, and how they may experience this type of phenomenon. And some individuals with some congenital missing limbs also report feeling pain but the limb never existed for that individual to begin with. Yes. Isn't that so interesting? This is one of the most interesting things to me in, in all of the research that I did. Yeah. I mean, this blows my mind. Like I, like you would think that it's like, well, because there was no nerve regrowth that there was nothing, but that also goes back to the idea that the neuromas, they don't exist for this person. So it, they can't be the sole thing that leads to fan- uh, phantom pain. Right. This one I think speaks the most to the hypotheses that because presumably And the part of the brain where that limb would have grown from, that part of the brain was there, but the limb just didn't grow for some reason. And so they had all the connections for it to be there. But what they don't have is the actual experience of having used those connections or the context in which those connections would occur. So again, not everybody, but there are people who were born without a body part and have experienced some amount of the phantom limb. And so, yeah, really fascinating. But I think that does speak to the hypotheses of the the neuron connections there as being one of the most important relevant factors in whether or not someone will experience phantom limb pain. I wonder if there's a difference between somebody who was born with like maybe one missing limb versus born with both. Interesting. Like, I wonder if there's a reported difference, right? Because, like, yeah. if you have one of those limbs, like, you have an experience with that sensation, but if you're missing both of those limbs, you would have never had the experience with that sensation. Yeah. Hmm. Questions. See, that's where we're solving the real problems here on why we do what we do. <laughs> and just answering more questions. <laughs> if we don't end this episode with more questions than we started, then we have not done our job. <laughs> our, our, our entire goal is to make you unsure of everything about the world. Exactly. <laughs> All right, should we dig in a little bit to some of the treatments for this? Yeah, let's talk about it because I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's a pretty significant problem for people, right? Like people who are experiencing pain, like if you look at research around pain and pain management in general, I am sure that you have some pretty unique experiences and some pretty difficult situations in general. Yeah, treatment is just believe you don't have pain and then you're fine. Yeah, that's what we've been talking about the whole time. It's all in your head. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Unfortunately, there are no prescriptions or drugs that exist for phantom limb pain specifically. However, some people have prescribed antidepressants, anticonvulsants, and pain management drugs that many people do report that that helps them to an extent. It's not consistent. It's not universal. It doesn't necessarily completely attenuate the problem. But yes, that is that is something that people have tried and had some amount of success with. Like, you know, if you're following like a, a common line of logic, like that would make sense, right? Yeah. But there are some other therapies that have been somewhat effective or reported as being effective too. And one of those is the mirror box therapy, which I think is so, so, so interesting. Yeah, this one's, this one's pretty cool to me, I think. All right, I'm going to give my best at this name. Okay. So there was a neurologist in the 1990s. And his name was Vilayanur S. Ramachandran. I did it, kind of. <laughs> That's as close as we're going to get. We're, we'll do our best. Great. Some people just call him V.S. Ramachandran, and that's that he might even go by that sometimes. But maybe he goes by like Vil or Villa. Yeah. So anyway, as I mentioned, a neurologist in the 1990s, and he had a, a patient who had an amputated limb and was reporting experiencing pain with that. And so he placed the non-amputated limb so let's say this is a person who had their left arm amputated okay and what they did is they put a mirror by their right arm 
at an angle so that the patient would look into the mirror and see the reflection of their right arm where their left arm would be. So it was almost like an optical illusion of an arm in place of where their amputated arm was. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense so far. And if you look up pictures of this, you'll see all kinds of interesting phenomenon where at first you won't even be able, you won't even realize that the person has an amputated leg. I mean, the mirror is also blocking where the leg is, but because it's so, the mirror really does look exactly like you have the limb where that missing thing is. And so there's one I saw with someone who had an amputated part of their leg and that they just put a mirror between the legs. And again, at an angle, so that to the patient, it looked, and they looked at the mirror, it looked like there was a leg where their amputated leg was. I want to say I've seen, like, I don't want this to sound like it's reductionist at all, but I've seen, like, magic tricks where they've done this, where they've, like, tricked your sensations. Like, they'll, like, use a, a feather to brush the hand where the mirror is, right? Like, you know, so you'll see, like, they'll brush the hand, and you'll see it in the reflection, but then they'll, like, implement something that's supposed to be painful on the other side that's that you're not in any danger at all, and you freak out. Like you like pull your hand away, even though it has nothing to do with it's like a, it's a really interesting thing. I'll have to find the video of it, but it, it's I've seen that with like magic tricks and different like brain trick things. Yeah, very cool example of that. And that might be if we find it, we might link it in the show notes for this one. But you might be asking the question, OK, why do we care that they put a mirror next to their amputated limb? Well, in a 2007 study, they showed that 100% of patients in the experimental condition, the, the condition that had the mirror box, they experienced some amount of pain reduction versus only 17% in the control group who had some non-mirror box therapy. And so, yeah, 100% of the patients experienced some amount of pain reduction in that particular study. And all they did was show them a mirror that had their other non-amputated limb present in the mirror so it looked like they had a non-imitated limb and so this sort of speaks back to that idea of as part of this you're sort of tricking your brain into thinking that limb is still there and also it creates the context for you when you would react to what it looks like just looking at your body and expecting to see those parts where they should be of oh cool like they're there so i feel okay um and it's almost like the fact that like a placebo works, even if you know it's a placebo, that you're not tricking them in any way, really, but you're creating the context and the experience of what it'd be like to have that limb again just by looking at it, which I just think is really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and if you're talking about treatment effect, the fact that 100% of patients reported that is significant. Yeah. That happens almost never in a study. Right, exactly. Now, what's cool is it shows that it was effective to some varying degrees. You know, some people reported probably larger effects than others, but I think more importantly, it's a really cool and cheap and easy solution to help mitigate some amount of pain. So even if it is only a temporary solution, it is something that is easily accessible to people or like at least easier to access than, say, pain medication management or direct therapy or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. Is that even if it takes it from, if we put it on a scale of one to 10, if it takes your pain from a 10 down to like a six, that's still better than being at a 10, you know, and it's very cheap. It's very easy. It's very portable. You can do it anywhere. And that's, that's a cool thing that even if it's not like a cure all, even if it's not a final treatment, that's going to ultimately mean you're, you're pain free forever. The fact that you have something that's within your control that you can do something I think is really neat. And so I'm, I'm optimistic about this as a therapy for people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if it's helpful, right. There are definitely some studies I found articles. I found they weren't really studies, but articles I found where people were critiquing the use of the study. People looked at various elements of this. So in this one, 
This initial study was just asking, did you experience a reduction in pain? Others tried to quantify how much reduction in pain did you experience? Others tried to quantify how long did this experience last? And so there were some that sort of said, well, this isn't really going to do a whole lot for people in the long run. It's not really going to completely mitigate their experience of pain. And so there are some criticisms out there, but I think just going back to this thing that we said earlier, the fact that this is a cheap, easy, portable within your control solution that doesn't, if it's very non-invasive that it's going to work for a lot of people. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. So I think that brings us to the next type of treatment for this phenomenon, which is deep brain stimulation. Right. One of the studies that talks about deep brain stimulation is Bitar et al. 2005 had three participants and they did a PET scan pretest and pain rating scale. So they tried to get an idea of where these people were at at baseline, where their brain was at baseline, where their pain ratings were at baseline, and then tried to kind of see if the treatments worked from there. Yeah. So basically what they did is they did a local anesthetic to their scalp and brain. They applied an electrode to the brain. And they, the patient had to be awake during this so they could get feedback from them. And so the patient was giving them feedback when they placed the electrode. And once they found the area that had the greatest pain relief, then they secured the electrode to the skull and then surgically implanted. And they obviously had to put the person under to do this part. They were totally knocked out after that. They surgically implanted a pulse generator in the chest so that they could stimulate the pulse generator. And then that would result in electronic sort of stimulation to that part of the brain, which would provide that temporary relief. That's uh, super invasive. Yes, this is invasive. Absolutely. What was cool, though, is that after a year, there was complete pain relief with one patient. So they no longer experienced any of those symptoms that they did before. Mm-hmm. For the other, it reduced opiates taken for the other two. So they were taking opiates to treat the phantom limb pains, and so they were able to reduce that. But all three reported an end of the burning sensation that they are experiencing as a result of this phenomenon. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the small end study. This is a single subject design, and those are fine. I think there's a lot to be learned from those. It wasn't the same results across all three, so they had varying levels of success, but they were able to otherwise mitigate some of the worst aspects of their pain for some of them using this method. Now, in a more recent 2018 review, they looked at 30 different randomized controlled trials, and none of those trials, they were they were, trying, they were sort of critiquing or looking for places where more research was needed in this research with deep brain stimulation, and none of those 30 randomized control trials that they looked at actually reported any reduction in symptoms of like mental health. So they just didn't measure at all whether or not they found any improvement in some of the things that someone with phantom limb or an amputated limb might experience like anxiety or depression. They just didn't really measure it for the most part. And so that was something they saw as a weakness in some of those studies or, or something that would really augment some of those future studies on phantom limb in general. What they reported is that for this deep brain stimulation, the results were fairly modest and just didn't really, they didn't clearly support the use of deep brain stimulation. And so many patients reported that it seemed to kind of help sometimes, but there was also then sort of the overall interpretation, if you will, from these researchers is that it just might not be worth the risk to go through that invasive of a surgery for something that's not much of a guarantee. That is an incredibly invasive technology. That's supposed to maybe help. Yeah, exactly. Probably not worth it. So then the the final part that we wanted to talk about too were these ideas of uh, of cognitive factors that contributed, right? So we talked about like the idea of of like you know it's all in your head and and kind of all that. But I'm looking at all these things that do impact this. So an article in 2018 by um, Fuchs et al. 
in Pain Research and Management, examined research on the role of emotional, motivational, cognitive, and perceptual factors around phantom limb pain. So they try to study all these different things, which is a pretty broad sweep, right? Right. So some of the highlights, though, they found were that the emotional factors related to it were moderately impactful, but less so than other chronic pain. So they didn't really see as much of an effect with those, those emotional factors, but the extent of the disability is critically important here. So to what degree they're they're able to use the limb or the, what's left of their limb or the amputated limb or how severe that amputation is definitely contributes. They also found that stress had an important bi-directional relation to phantom limb pain, which is that higher stress seemed to impact higher phantom limb pain and higher phantom limb pain seemed to impact stress. And those things are just sort of connected and lived in the same space, if you will, such that those were tended to be experienced together, which does kind of make sense. I mean, if you're in pain, you're probably not exactly your most calm and mellow. So in the review, they did not find anything on attention and expectations as being relevant factors, although that was something that they recommended others look into. And also catastrophizing seemed to substantially increase their reports on the experience of pain. So I would imagine that if they're talking about things being catastrophic, things would be worse. (laughs) Yeah. And this one actually does go to the idea that the way that you think about and sort of talk about verbalize or otherwise characterize your experience, you can augment that experience. You can augment to the feeling of pain if you really focus on and make that the center of your reality, if you will, is just like sort of over, over dramatizing it in a way. And again, this is not to say that it's, all completely controllable, but you can, to an extent, alter your experience such that it's worse than it might be otherwise. Yeah. So I think that brings us to kind of one of the later points and one of the points that people make about phantom limb pains is it, is it all in their mind? Right. And so the fact that phantom limb pain does not affect 100% of amputees has some people believe that phantom limb pain is just mostly or entirely psychological, which is to say it's just in your mind. You're just like creating that for yourself, but you you could just get away from it if you don't want to. But uh, we've already talked about many reasons why that's probably not the case just from a conceptual standpoint. But furthermore, there was this 2017 review that was looking at these studies and reported that the studies that supported this hypothesis that did suggest that this was just the psychological thing, that the support for those hypotheses was weak. Sometimes they were even self-contradicting, and I looked at some of these studies, they were. These looked like very much like sort of conspiracy theory level in the writing. The authors specifically reported that those studies had weak evidence, poor controls, and usually low sample sizes for group designs. And so where there seems to be research suggesting that this is something that's just psychological, it's just in your head, just get over it, you're fine, they are bunk. They do not seem to be doing good science. I'm going to start saying that more often, too. It's just, it's just big, oh, that's bunk. <laughs> How's that new restaurant? That's bunk. <laughs> great. No, it's great. I mean, it's important to recognize that because I think that this phenomenon is more complex than just saying it's in your head. And it's clear that it is by looking at all the neurological and biological factors that contribute to this phenomenon for this group of people that suffer from, I mean, because ultimately, they like you have this group of people that are suffering from chronic pain in a limb that they cannot actively treat. Right. And so I think that actually kind of segues nicely into probably one of our most important take-homes here, which is that it's just unclear why and how and the extent to which some people are affected more by phantom limb pain than others. It's, it's just not clearly known. And also, 
it's not really clearly known the mechanisms by which that pain is experienced, like what is causing that in the brain or at the amputation side and whatnot. I think that probably there are multiple factors and we're getting clearer on the fact that there are multiple factors, but we don't know what they all are or how they all contribute. So there really just needs to be more research. But just because this isn't caused primarily by psychological factors doesn't mean that experience can't be somewhat mitigated by psychological interventions, which is to say certain forms of cognitive behavioral therapy or act therapy or behavioral therapy, those might help some of those symptoms. And I think that's what it comes down to is just ultimately, we're not sure why it happens. We've got some ideas, we've got some threads to pull, but there just needs to be more research on on why it's occurring and how to best treat it. Cool. Well, that is all that I have. Do you have any other take-homes or anything else you want to add to that, Shane? No. I mean, I would say that before this, my only experience with Phantom Limbs were related to, uh, it was a Pig Destroyer album called Phantom Limb. <laughs> so it was a really good metal, a good, really cool metal record. But other than that, this was my only experience. <laughs> cool. Recommendations. Okay, so we're going to now try something a little bit new. I would like to potentially start including a section at the end of our discussions where we do some recommendations about maybe stuff we're watching or some something we've seen recently. Yeah, so do you want to go first, Shane? Yeah, right now I've got two things that are, are um, piquing my interest. And the first thing would be if you are into any sort of like really cool literature and stuff that's up to date. One thing that I'm reading is I just got a, a, an edition of Perspectives on Behavior Science in the newest edition talks about treating addiction behaviorally. Cool. So it's a whole special edition on addiction, which I think is really interesting, which is actually why I got into psychology was to be an addictions counselor. Neat. Yeah. So little tidbit. I started there. Ended up in a very different realm. But the other one I'm getting ready to start reading is a book called White Fragility. And it's all about why white people have a hard time talking about racism. Wow. And kind of the language around that. So I'm really excited about that. So those two are on my reading document or doc, uh, like they're right there in my readings. But the last recommendation I have is a book called Recursion by Blake Crouch. Cool. Have you heard of this? No, I have not. It's all about false memories. Interesting. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It's this really cool, like mystery type of thing. So I don't want to spoil it for everybody, but he's written a couple of other really cool sci-fi books. It was a really, really good, like sci-fi book about like, about memory and like how the brain works and stuff like that. So it was really neat. Cool. Okay. I'm going to do two recommendations. The first one's actually going to be for a podcast. And so if you are listening to this, you probably already listened to this other podcast, but the podcast I'm going to recommend is the behavioral observations podcast. They've thrown us a lot of attention over time and I really appreciated it. And I always wanted to have an opportunity to send that back their way. So if you don't already listen to the behavioral observations podcast, I would definitely recommend that. And also thanks Matt for the various shout outs that you've had over time. And I apologize. It's taken us so long to return the favor forever. Grateful for Matt. Yes. That podcast is so good. Yeah. Specifically the Pat Fryman ones. I always like listening to Pat Fryman on there and like, there's just some really great ones on there. Yeah. There was one episode that made me feel guilty about not using a standard acceleration chart. And it was really <laughs> good. Like it really made me think deeply about data analysis. So it, it's impactful for real. 
yeah no it's it's for those two people who listen to this who haven't listened to that podcast um <laughs> it's primarily sort of long-form discussion and question and answer format with an expert in the field of behavior analysis specifically and we just it's a cool podcast we both like and so that if that's something you're interested in they tend to do very specific topics with those experts and they tend to be really good conversations and so it's a good show the other recommendation i have i'm gonna go ahead and go with a fantasy series i have tried picking up in the past but i actively committed to this time and it wasn't anything against the series it was just that like i found it harder and harder over time to really set aside time to read and now i just make sure i'm always carrying my book with me so that i can be reading if i have downtime so the the whole series is called the stormlight archives by brandon sanderson and i'm on the first book which is called the way of kings nice yeah i like it i'll check it out i'm adding it to my list sweet yeah good super awesome nerdy fantasy stuff so yeah i don't know if you all have picked up we're a little bit nerdy about stuff yeah it's great yeah i love it all right perfect all right well i think that's all we got i do want to also point out we have a promotion going on right now for if you take a survey there is a link to the survey in the show notes then you will get a sticker for completing the survey and you'll get entered into a raffle for a shirt and i'm thinking because we're probably going to keep this survey going for a while we might do a couple rounds of raffles and so we're going to figure out a good time to close this round of, of raffles to send it a shirt it'll be a little while yet but we're going to keep the survey going because we are trying to get to know our listeners and do a better job sort of tailoring our content to the interest of the people who are tuning in every week and checking out what we have to say and then, of course, do uh, you have anything on that? Uh, no, as I say, we are people of the people. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Of course, you can reach us by contacting us via email on all the social media platforms. Please take a moment to subscribe if you haven't already. Rate and review this. Recommend it to a friend, any of that stuff. And then if you have any stories or if you have any recommendations you'd like to send, please feel free to. If you have any stories about Phantom Limb, we'd really like to hear any of that stuff. I feel like we've had, we haven't had as much I listen to mail lately and I miss hearing from people. So if you've got anything, I would love for you to write in and we can share your story on one of our discussions on here. So yeah, for sure. We would love to hear from you. Like we always love the feedback. And so please keep giving us feedback, keep rating us on whatever you listen to us on and let us know. Um, we do take it to heart and we do take it very seriously. So yep. All right, cool. That's all I got. Thank you so much for listening. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to why we do what we do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Oh, deep, deep. No. Damn it. Why did I do that? Why would you do that?
And so uh, we are going to... Oh, uh, well, great. That's perfect. <laughs> Let's try that again. <laughs> My alarm set for 8.30 apparently. <laughs> That's how I, I want to wake up. <laughs> okay. Well, that was fun.